Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, uh, I'll try to sort of recap what we've done up to this point for anybody who might have not been here or if, uh, if you're like me and your memory isn't always so, so uh, great. So far in our studies through the Lord's Prayer, uh, we have seen a number of things. We've seen that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us the Lord's Prayer to be pattern and model for our prayers. In other words, he intends for us to understand in verse 9 when he says, pray then what? Like this, he wants us to, to see when you, when you hear that, when you read that, he's indicating this is to be the model of our prayers. Everything that you and I need to pray about in some way is summarized in this prayer. Everything you and I need to know about prayer is in some small way summarized here briefly in the Lord's Prayer. It doesn't mean that uh, we have to just pray this prayer verbatim, word for word, although he does in the other passage. Remember, there's two passages in the Gospels where the Lord's Prayer is taught, and the other one is in Luke chapter 11. And when he teaches his disciples to pray in Luke 11, he doesn't just say pray then like this. He says, when you pray, say our Father in heaven. So it's both. It's hard to learn a pattern if you don't know the pattern. It's hard to learn and know the pattern if you don't ever use it verbatim. And so it's a teaching tool in a lot of different ways. It's a good practice for us as a church to pray this prayer on a regular basis. It's one of the reasons we do it every first Sunday of the month uh, as well. We also saw that the Lord's Prayer can be divided up or outlined in two basic parts, two halves. The first three have to do with what? What's the first half of the Lord's Prayer all about? Who is it all about? God. It's about God first. God's name, God's kingdom, and His will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. What do the last three requests have to do with? The first half is about God. The last half, the last three, have to do with our own needs. Not just my own needs. Our. It's all plural. Our own needs. Whether that be our daily bread the forgiveness of our debts or trespasses, and protecting us from temptation and evil. Last Sunday we looked at the first request in the Lord's Prayer, which is, Hallowed be thy name. Uh, We saw that that request comes first, not just in order, but how else? It also comes first because it's first in priority. The hallowing or revering of God's name is holy comes before everything else in the Lord's Prayer. God is to be Uh, His glory is to be the chief desire of our hearts. And it's to be the first and greatest concern in our prayers. I don't know about you, but my prayers don't often sound like that. Well, that's why we need, and I need, and maybe you need, to be reminded of the Lord's Prayer and what it has to teach us, what, what the Lord Jesus Christ has to teach us in this prayer. God's glory is to come even before my concern for my own daily bread. And the same goes for you. We just sang a song that's basically Matthew 6.33 put to music. What did you just sing? You just sang it. Seek ye first, Jesus says, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what does he say? And all these things will be added unto you. 
In other words, things like your daily bread. What what comes before your daily bread? The glory of God's name and even our you know the kingdom of God is more important. I don't know about you, but I think my daily bread's pretty important. And God says, guess what? God's kingdom comes even before that. And then if you seek that, he'll provide the other things as well. well. We now come to the second request or second petition, which is thy kingdom come. It's the shortest request in the Lord's Prayer by a little bit there in verse 10. Thy kingdom come. What is the relationship between the first request, hallowed be thy name, and the second request, thy kingdom come, and really the rest of what follows in the Lord's Prayer is, how do they go together? How does one relate to the next and those that follow after it? William Perkins, the great uh, father of English Puritanism, writes this. He says, Christ, having taught us to pray for the sanctifying of God's name, hallowed be thy name, in the first petition does in this and the rest which follow, as it were, expound the same by directing us to the means whereby God's name is to be hallowed of us. Did you catch that? The first is the main goal, hallowed be thy name. Everything that comes after it is the means to that end. He says, for then do we glorify God's name when he sets up his kingdom in us. And when we suffer or allow him to rule in our hearts, when we do his will, depend on his providence for the things of this life, that's my daily bread, our daily bread. Trust in his mercy for the pardon of our sins and on his power and strength against temptation. These aren't just random requests strung together, you know, haphazardly. Each one builds on the previous one and points you back to it. How is God's name to be hallowed in our prayers? How are we to seek God's name being revered as holy? Well, we seek his kingdom to come, his will to be done. We rely on him for our daily bread. All those things glorify him in that, in that order in our prayers. One builds upon the next. So each request follows and builds upon what went before in the previous requests, and all of them really end up pointing back to the first request, which is, hallowed be thy name. The the prayer that God's name, the name of our Heavenly Father, might be revered as holy and glorified is really the controlling request of the whole prayer, even including his kingdom and our daily bread. Much like the first request, hallowed be thy name, the second one, probably doesn't sound like much of a request at all in the English translations. Like I think I said last week that to me as a kid, I always thought it was a statement of fact. Like you're telling God, you know, your kingdom come. No, it's let your kingdom come or may your kingdom come. Well, what does it mean to pray for that? That's why we're here this morning. What does it mean to pray for God's kingdom, the kingdom of our heavenly father to come? And more than that, what is the kingdom of God? that we are praying to come in the Lord's Prayer. That's what we're going to look at, Lord willing, today from our passage. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you might know, I've mentioned it before, maybe you already knew, that it gives a line-by-line explanation, uh, an exposition of sorts, of the Lord's Prayer in the last section of the Catechism. The very last thing in in, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is ten questions on the Lord's Prayer. I commend that to you, and we're going to look at part of that this morning. It's a very clear and helpful explanation of the text, uh, and it's also got a very good explanation of this second request. So what we're going to do, Lord willing, this morning is use our catechism's question and answer on the second que- uh, second request, and it's going to serve as kind of an outline of our sermon this morning. So question 102 says this, 
What do we pray for in the second petition? A petition is a request. What do we pray for in the second petition? Answer, in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, there's one, and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, that's two, and three, that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Perfect three-point outline, right? Thank you, Westminster Shorter Catechism. So we're going to look first at what the kingdom of God is in general this morning. I think it's helpful for us to think that through. I think that's one of those phrases we read in Scripture again and again and give no thought to or very little thought to what the kingdom of God is. And then we're going to look at uh, what it means to pray that the kingdom of God would come in those three things, that it would come in the form of the destruction of the kingdom of Satan, that it would come in the advancement of the kingdom of grace in this life, and that it would come finally in the hastening of the kingdom of glory in the life to come when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. So the first thing I thought we should look at this morning before we go too much into the request itself is what is what is the kingdom of God? Have you ever thought about that? If you've read your New Testament especially, but the whole Bible really, you have read that phrase uh, if you've read your whole New Testament, you've read that phrase so many times you probably aren't even aware of it. You know, what do they say? If it was a snake, it would bite you. It's, it's, it's right there in front of you on every other page. And I think some of us, I know I do, we, we just kind of gloss right over it and don't give it much thought. might surprise you to know that uh, the, the phrase, just the simple phrase, the kingdom of God is found no less than 68 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. 68 times, just that phrase. That's not including phrases like kingdom of heaven and that, you know, synonyms, so to speak. We, we can only begin to kind of scratch the surface of what this means, but we're going to try to do a little bit of that here this morning. The Gospel of Matthew uses the word kingdom over 50 times. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount and everything else in, in Matthew's Gospel, you're going to see that word and that phrase so many times it's going to astound you. It's also in Matthew's Gospel that we find Jesus teaching a series of parables about, quote, the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. They're, they're called the kingdom parables, the parable of the sower and whatnot. We don't tend to think about, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Well, how often do we read the parable and forget to even think about that phrase in the first place and what it means? We, we just went through the Gospel of Mark not that long ago, and at the very beginning of, of the Gospel of Mark, when he talks about Jesus' public ministry commencing, the message of Jesus Christ, the message that Jesus our Lord preached himself, is summarized as this, Mark 1, 14 to 15, that Jesus, quote, was, quote, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' preaching was kingdom preaching. He was saying with his coming, the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The gospel itself is elsewhere described in Matthew's gospel three different times as, quote, the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4.23, Matthew 9.35, and again, Matthew 24.14. Three different times, it seems almost beginning, middle, and end of, of Matthew's gospel. He calls the gospel, not just the gospel, not just the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. It's a picture of a, of, a, of a royal herald going forth with news from the king. That's what the gospel is, according to Scripture. You might remember the story of Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. 
Remember, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, John 3.1, and Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, John 3.10. What does he tell Nicodemus that floored Nicodemus and, and threw him for a loop? He says that uh, unless one is born again, he cannot see what? He cannot see the kingdom of God or enter it. Even when he talked to Nicodemus, he talked about the kingdom of God. What were the official charges against the Lord Jesus Christ that led to his crucifixion and death? The capital, the punishment of capital punishment as his form of death. Remember, Pontius Pilate, uh, his accusation was printed on a thing above his head, a plaque above his head. It was the king of the Jews. He asked him, are you a king? And Jesus basically said, you say so. That was the charge against him that led to his crucifixion. When he was on trial before Pontius Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus says this, My kingdom, he doesn't, he does not deny he has a kingdom, which would have gotten him off the hook. If he would have just said, hey, you got the wrong idea, Pontius, I'm not a king. He doesn't say, he goes, my kingdom is not of this world. I have a kingdom, but it's not the kind of kingdom you're thinking of, Pontius Pilate. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Remember, Peter kind of had that idea, didn't he? He pulled a sword out and tried to kill somebody, and he cut off somebody's ear, and Jesus told him to stop. The, the kingdom of God does not advance by the sword. Worldly, satanic religions advance by the sword, not, not Jesus Christ's kingdom. He has a sword. What is it? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and he uses it to advance his kingdom. And so both at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of Mark and all the way up to his crucifixion, his kingdom is a very prominent theme, front and center. It shows up again and again and again and again in the Gospels. The book of Revelation, Revelation 11.15, we find these words. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The consummation of Christ's kingdom that we read of in Revelation and elsewhere is the culmination of all of human history. His kingdom. Twice in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Surely the fact that Jesus Christ is so often in the, in the pages of the Bible, repeatedly and repeatedly shown to be a conquering king. That's that's what Revelation teaches us. If I could sum up the entire book of Revelation, I'd be borrowing William Hendrickson's phrase from the title of his book. He borrows it from Romans. More than conquerors. Jesus goes forth conquering and to conquer. And I think that's what Paul has in mind when Paul says in Romans 8.37 that you and I, if you're in Christ, that we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. It's military kingdom imagery. You're not losing a fight. You can't lose a fight. The war has already been won, and one day it will be manifest for all to see. This points us back to a lot of places in the Old Testament, including Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. I was talking to Pastor Gary yesterday at lunch, and, and I remember his sermon here on Psalm 110, God's favorite Bible verse. Uh, that's, you know, it's one of those things that talks about Jesus as the King, the Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one or anointed king. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God's Messiah, His anointed King, who rules the nations, Psalm 2 says, with a what? A rod of iron. 
He's not a weak king. He is a powerful king, and he will dash them to pieces like pottery if they don't bow the knee to him. That's what it says in Psalm 2. He's also told in Psalm 110, God's favorite Bible verse, so to speak, to sit at the right hand of God until he makes all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. It's ascension language. The ascension of Christ is one of those things in the New Testament that is, its importance is hard to overemphasize, and yet we ignore it, or we don't really think much about it. We think rightly of the crucifixion, the resurrection. We forget about the ascension. What does the ascension mean? It's what the whole book of Acts is kind of about. It means Jesus is reigning not some distant time in the future, in an earthly Jerusalem. He's reigning now. Psalm 110.1 is going on now. God the Father said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's happening right now. He's sitting and reigning even now. In other words, this is a subject, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, that the scriptures speak of so often that we should probably have some idea what it means. And yet most of us, I include myself in that, very often give it very little thought. We don't really think much about the implications of it that the kingdom of God is such a prominent part of the Lord's prayer, and even of the gospel message itself, should give us more than enough motivation to seek to grow in our understanding of what it means. Now, we can't begin to exhaust the full meaning of what that uh, is about, especially in one sermon. I won't try to do that. It may feel like I've just done that, but I haven't. Um, But I think what we're going to do is we'll try to look at what it means through those three things that the Shorter Catechism points out about the kingdom of God in question one, answer 102. So the first thing that the Catechism speaks of in its explanation of the Lord's Prayer in Thy Kingdom Come is that it's not even about the kingdom of God at all. At first, what's the first thing the Catechism question mentions? It's, it's the destruction of the kingdom of Satan. So part of the advancement of the kingdom of our Heavenly Father necessarily involves the defeat and destruction of the kingdom of Satan. The one has to advance for the other one to be lessened. Now, the scriptures speak of Satan, in a sense, as a king, as the god of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Ephesians 2, 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. In some sense, he has some form of authority over this world, although at Christ's resurrection, what did he say in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the rightful king. Satan is nothing but a pretender and a usurper, although he does have power over some things. Just that power is in subjection to Christ even then. He is a false god, Satan is. He is a pretender to the throne. He vainly opposes God in this world. He blinds the eyes of the unbelieving. And I think he also blinds the eyes of the unbelieving to his own existence. You know, many many do not believe that Satan exists. If you've ever read... C.S. Lewis, I think it was, talked about in Mere Christianity that, that Satan is just as happy with somebody who is a, a, a materialist, someone who says there's no supernatural anything, there's no God, there's no Satan, there's no angels. This is not a quote. But that he's just as happy with a materialist as he is a magician. In other words, he's as happy as can be if you're in a cult and you're worshiping him and going out of your way to acknowledge him as he is if you just blithely walk through life and say there's no such thing. The devil does not exist. He's more than happy either way. I think Lewis is right in that. Others wrongly imagine that he is somehow the equal opposite of God. He's the yin to God's yang, so to speak. God is all-powerfully good, and he's all-powerfully evil. That's not true. That is a mistake. That is an error. He is a created being. He is not infinite in power 
and being and wisdom and glory as God himself is. One day, the book of Revelation talks about the Lord Jesus Christ judging Satan and throwing him into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 10. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. He is a created being. He is nothing compared to God. He is nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There are a great multitude of people in this world, maybe even, I think, a majority at this time, who are actively serving the kingdom of Satan, whether they realize it or not. I don't know if you've ever, uh, I don't recommend these, but uh, you ever had a, a reason or a, a cause to read these old gospel tracts by Jack Chick? They were, card, they were like a comic book. And I used to give them out on my ships when I was in the Navy, and people ate them up because they were entertaining. They were, oh, look at this, you know, the truck driver and all this stuff. And one of the things I started to think about them that's wrong with them is, you know, what's the old saying? There's two kinds of people in this world. You know, those who love Neil Diamond. And, no. Uh, there's two kinds of people in this world. There are people who are in the kingdom of God, and there are those who are, as of yet, in the kingdom of darkness and of the evil one. Uh, well, those tracks had a tendency, in my opinion, to split people up into three groups. You had people in the kingdom of God who knew the Lord. You had people who were serving Satan. And then you had this nebulous middle group, as if there was a spiritual Switzerland, so to speak, that they hadn't made up their minds yet, but they're not serving Satan. What does the Bible say about that? The God of this world has blinded their eyes, and they are serving him whether they know it or not. What's the old Bob Dylan song? Some of you don't know who that is, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You're serving one or the other. Jesus doesn't say you can't serve three masters. He said you can't serve two. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and Satan. It's one or the other, and you're serving somebody whether you know it or not. So all these people in the world, many of them, maybe most of them, who are actively serving the kingdom of Satan, whether they know it or not, what does Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 say about that? Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, I know we talked about it last week as well. It describes unbelievers in the following way. It says, you... You know, this, this, is, this was your life. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How many, how many kinds of people are there? Two, not three, not a multitude. One does not need to be a, a devil worshiper or be a, in an occult practicing cult in order to serve the kingdom of Satan. All it takes is unbelief and unrepentance. That's all it takes, and that describes most of humanity. You're either serving the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, or you are serving in some way the kingdom of Satan. And so who, who are you serving today? This is a time for us to look at our own hearts, not somebody else's heart, and ask yourself, who are you serving? Are you serving Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and the God of your salvation, or are you serving the God of this world? Now we see the evidence of Satan's influence and kingdom in many places, in many ways today, and in all times. Wherever our Lord's commandments are rejected and despised, you see it there. Wherever wickedness is openly practiced and celebrated, that is evidence of his reign and influence. Wherever the church is persecuted and the gospel is openly opposed, wherever false religion holds sway, deceiving the hearts of many, wherever perversion and wickedness and wicked practices like abortion are allowed and even celebrated as a right, that is evidence of the work of Satan and his kingdom. 
I think we see a lot of that evidence in our world, even in our country today. So we should want to see his evil and destructive kingdom destroyed. And what does the Lord's Prayer teach us about that according to our catechism? It teaches us to pray that God's kingdom might come and destroy the kingdom of Satan. In other words, the advancement of Christ's kingdom necessarily involves the destruction and decay of the kingdom of Satan in this world. That's what we should be praying for when we pray for the kingdom of God to come. So in its explanation of the second request, our catechism also speaks of, of another kind of kingdom, not just the kingdom of Satan, but it, it talks about the advancement of the kingdom of grace in this life and the hastening of the kingdom of glory in the life to come. Now, theologians have often distinguished between the kingdom of grace uh, and the kingdom of glory. Now, are these two different kingdoms? Is our catechism adding a third kingdom here somewhere? That No, these aren't two separate kingdoms. They're two aspects of one and the same kingdom of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas Watson, uh, my favorite Puritan, says, They differ not in nature but in degree only. In other words, the kingdom of grace is simply the present-day manifestation, the ongoing expression of the rule of Christ, while the kingdom of glory is its final future and complete expression or manifestation of that very same rule and kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of glory is the final consummation of the kingdom of grace. It's when it's made plain for all to see in its completeness. When you pray for the coming of the Lord's kingdom of grace, that's this side of glory, that's now, uh, before the return of Christ, you're praying for such things as the destruction of Satan's kingdom, the salvation of the lost, that sinners might be brought to repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ and salvation in his name. We pray that the Lord's rightful reign would be more and more acknowledged by all that his good and righteous commandments would be affirmed, upheld, and obeyed in all spheres of human life. And for the good news of the gospel to spread to the ends, the ends of the earth. Now, what is the kingdom of Christ, which he says, remember he says to Pilate that his kingdom was what? Not of this world. What does that mean? In other words, you, you can't really see it in some ways. What does it mean? What does it look like if it's not of this world? Well, there's a verse that our kids, uh, Mary is teaching our kids to memorize. It's one of their memory verses. They could probably say it right now if I were to ask them, but I won't put them on the spot. Romans fourteen, seventeen, And it says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of what? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Very good. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That That is a description of the advancement of God's kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, in you if you're a believer. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those, those are the marks of the kingdom of Christ in your life. They are the marks of those who are the citizens of that kingdom of God. Righteousness. Why does he say righteousness? What does that mean? Those who are in Christ by faith, if you were a Christian this morning, you have the imputed righteousness of Christ accounted to you for salvation and that he justifies you because you are justified by the righteousness of Christ reckoned to you by faith. You, your sins are forgiven because Christ paid for them on the cross. You were accepted by a holy God, an infinitely holy God, as righteous in his sight. How? because you are accounted righteous in Christ. He's, he imputes Christ's perfect righteousness to you 
by faith when you're united to him by faith. So you're justified also sanctification. Sanctification. It's the ongoing work of God's grace in your life as a Christian. What does Hebrews 12.14 say? Without holiness, no one will what? See the Lord. Very often the Holy Spirit, it sounds like a play on word, in the scripture is called the spirit of holiness. Why is he called that? For a lot of reasons. He is holy, but one of the reasons for it is because what is the, what is the effect of his work, his ongoing work in your life as a Christian? Not perfect sinlessness in this life, but holiness. You may not feel very holy, but he is sanctifying you, and that is a mark of belonging in God's kingdom in Christ. Peace, righteousness and peace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a mark of Christ's kingdom, that his people will enjoy peace. In some sense, we're at war, but not with God. We have peace with God, which makes the war we have with the world and Satan's kingdom bearable. Do you have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ? If you don't have peace with God, you won't have peace at all. Nothing is right until you have peace with God. You can try all as hard as you want to make your life right in other respects, but if you don't have peace with God, nothing will ever be right until you have been reconciled to God. That's why Paul says, we plead with you, be reconciled to God. And that's only through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, past tense, we have, present tense, peace with God. Not only that, but when you have peace with God, you'll also be more and more one who pursues peace with all men, also Hebrews 12, 14. Even in the Lord's Prayer, what does it say? Forgive us our debts, even as we what? Forgive our debtors. It's, it's hinting at it already. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy is another mark of the kingdom of God and of Christ, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit himself. Real joy, not happy, not just happiness, joy. The joy of, of Christ, the joy of the Holy Spirit, is the kind of joy that causes you to rejoice even in times of affliction and trial. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. That makes no sense to the unbeliever. That is one of the main testimonies of a Christian to the unbelieving world. They look at that and they say, what in the world? Because it doesn't make any sense to see joy in the suffering. Acts 6-7 is another snapshot of what it means to pray uh, for, the, for God's kingdom to come, his kingdom of grace to come. It says, Acts, Acts 6-7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the word of God increased, it spread. The influence of the word, the preaching of the word spread further. And because the word spread, what happened? The number of disciples, Christians, multiplied. That's how you see Christ's kingdom coming in this life, his kingdom of grace. And so church growth per se, we, we always talk about church growth. Church growth is not the goal. And I'm going to shock you or upset you by saying that. Church growth, I almost hate using the phrase because it gets the whole thing backwards. Church growth is not the goal except as a means uh, except as that means that the word of God is spreading and disciples are being made. No church needs to grow because it needs to grow. Sinners need to be saved. That's it. And God, God gives the increase, and God adds as the word increases. Preach the word, and God will save sinners. That's how it works, and God will add who he sees 
fit to add and save the lost. That's what we pray for. We don't pray for our own little kingdoms to grow. We pray for God's kingdom to grow. So do you pray for the salvation of the lost? I'm sure that you do. Do you earnestly desire to make disciples of all the nations here in Ramona and elsewhere as well? As the Lord Jesus commanded in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Do you desire to see the church built up and the word of Christ would increase? Are you ordering not just your prayers, but also your lives and your priorities, your time, effort, and resources towards this goal? That's that's something that comes up again and again as you study through the Lord's Prayer is, if we're going to pray something, we need to make sure, we need to search our own hearts and say, am I, am I ordering my life sincerely according to what I'm praying, or am I just saying it? If I want God's name to be hallowed, is he being hallowed in me? That's where it starts. If God's kingdom is going to come, let it come and grow in me first, as well as everyone else. Well, the last thing our text talks about is it, it says in, in the Catechism that we are taught to pray in thy kingdom come. We are also taught to pray for the hastening of his kingdom of glory, which is the, the final form of the kingdom of, of grace. And I think that that request or that, that part of the request kind of echoes the words of Revelation 22, verse 20. It says, even so, come Lord Jesus, or come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what you're praying. When you say, thy kingdom come, you're saying, God, build your kingdom now and hasten the day when that final manifestation of Christ's reign is made public for all to see in all the world. And every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. To pray, thy kingdom come, is to pray ultimately for the Lord Jesus Christ to return in glory, to judge the living and the dead, and to rule in glory with his redeemed people forever in heaven. In that day, the, the words of Revelation 21, 3 to 4, will finally become a reality. You know, very often we say, you know, Lord Jesus come, but not yet. You know, the old, I forget who wrote it, but there's a song, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. You know, uh, well, we, we should want to go now. And Revelation 21, 3 to 4, this is what the consummation of Christ's kingdom is going to look like in some sense. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. If that doesn't get you to pray thy kingdom come, nothing will. Who wouldn't want to pray, thy kingdom come, when you think about it that way? May the Lord Jesus Christ be pleased as he did with his disciples in the the gospel. May he be pleased to teach you and I how to pray that we might pray uh, and ask for the advance and hastening of his kingdom in the answers to the prayers of us as people. May we learn to pray this way as well, to pray for the glory of his name and pray for his name to be glorified first by what? By By the coming of his kingdom, both the kingdom of grace in this life and the kingdom of glory in the next, let's let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Lord's Prayer. We thank you for all of your scriptures that you teach us, that you renew our minds and transform our lives. We pray that you would not just transform our life, although we need that, but we pray that you would transform our prayer lives by the renewing of our minds about prayer as well. Lord, we are, we are not good at praying. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. We ask that you would help us in our weakness. Thank you that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us and that Christ... Uh, your Son, and our Lord, our Mediator, is also praying for us at your right hand, and even sanctifying our imperfect and selfish prayers. 
Uh, But we ask that you would give us grace, work in our hearts that we might have as our greatest desire, the glory of your name, and that your name might be glorified in the coming of your kingdom, the kingdom of grace in this life, as well as the kingdom of glory in the next. We pray that you would help us to pray and to seek diligently the, the destruction of the kingdom of Satan in this world, that we would be as offended uh, at his kingdom seeming to spread or gain a sway uh, as we would if an enemy country attacked our shores. Give us grace to, to love your kingdom, to seek its advance and growth, and which only you can do, Lord, which is why you tell us to pray, Lord. Give us grace, forgive, give us grace not to trust in our own, our own doings, our own plans. Give us grace to trust in your work through the gospel. May your word increase and may the number of disciples multiply greatly here in Ramona and elsewhere around the world that you might be glorified in the coming of your kingdom. For it's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.